As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. I'm pleased to say that we're joined by the Richmond Fed President, Tom Barkin, alongside the brilliant Bloomberg's Mike McKee. You happy with that introduction, Mike? I like that. That worked for you? Good. And the brilliant President Barkin. (laughs) Tom, great to catch up. Thanks for being with us. Yeah, thanks for having me here. So we get some Fed speak 60 minutes after the inflation report. So let's start there. Your response to that CPI print we got a little bit earlier. It's about as uh, expected. Uh, Inflation is normalizing, but it's coming down slowly. And, uh, you know, I just think there's going to be a lot more inertia, a lot more persistence to inflation than maybe we'd all want. Um, part of that is still COVID factors, uh, excess money in people's pockets, um, uh, supply chain issues in places like cabinets and switch gears. Part of it is business factors. There are businesses out there still trying to recover lost margin. But I think the biggest thing is that after the experience of the last couple of years, um, businesses have now understood that pricing is a lever again. And as I talk to the folks in my district, I'm hearing people still out there pushing price and trying to see, to try to test where the levels of inelasticity really are. So one thing we've heard from Fed officials, including the chairman, is that the disinflationary process has started. Is that something you agree with? Do you see much evidence of that? And where do you find that evidence? Well, if you look at the 12-month numbers, you can see they peaked several months ago and they're coming down steadily. Um, but that's one part of the puzzle is inflation coming down. The other part is actually hitting our target. And so it just it's going to take a while to get to there. Do the latest data that have come in, not just today's CPI, but the jobs report, et cetera, change your view of how far the Fed will have to go beyond perhaps what was in the SEP for December? Uh, And does it change your view of inflation dynamics? Well, I try not to get uh, too wound up in any particular data read, particularly a January data read, large seasonality factors, all that sort of stuff. But I do think uh, what we're now in a position to do is to react to multiple months of data as they come in. Uh, We may or may not uh, choose to take rates up further if inflation continues to persist, but we'll have to see what happens. Well, based on what you're seeing right now in terms of the path of inflation, the uh, dot plot said 5.13% in December. You think that's enough? I think we'll see. Uh, We're going to get a PC at the end of the month, another CPI before the next meeting. And then I think as the meetings go on this year, we'll see what happens uh, to inflation. If inflation settles, uh, maybe we don't go quite as far. But if inflation persists uh, at levels well above our our target, maybe we'll have to do more. Well, do you think uh, um, that maybe you and the markets are on a different time frame? You're going meeting to meeting and they're looking out towards the end of 2023 saying you should be cutting rates by then? 
I'm not sure I understand markets. You guys are much better <laughs> than, than I am. Um, I'm very focused on uh, what's happening in the demand in the economy. I'm very focused on what's happening to inflation. And I think uh, the way to think about my view on, on rates is were inflation to persist, we might have to do more. If inflation doesn't persist, maybe not. How do financial conditions factor into that call, into that view? How do you think about financial conditions? Well, there's lots of definitions of financial conditions. How would you define it? Um, I think that as we raise rates, um, the market uh, and all markets, you know, sort of respond to how we're uh, doing things in the path that we uh, forecast. Um, you know, there are people who are out there saying financial conditions are back where they were a year ago, and I say, I don't know. It looks like rates are higher than they are a year ago. Certainly, if you're trying to get a mortgage, that's what you'd think. And so um, the financial markets make their forecasts and you know, uh, lending conditions, whatever, work off of that. Um, I think you can try to uh, manage it, uh, but I'm in the world of try to define your response function, try to live to your response function, and I think markets will catch up to what you're doing. If we can dig a little bit deeper, we've had a decent equity market rally here today. Credit spreads are, I think, something like 200 basis points tighter than the wides of, of last year. Do you see that as complicating your ability to tighten financial conditions and bring inflation back towards target? Is it something that's on your mind a lot? I think trying to manage markets, at least for me, is a fool's errand. And so I'm in the world of trying to manage what we can control. Uh, if demand stays hot, if inflation comes in elevated, uh, have rates move more. Uh, there are lots of other scenarios of what happens in the economy, and we'll respond to those. Well, one of the questions that uh, people are asking is, does it make it harder? Does it, uh, is, a, is the market pushing back against you, and do you see inflation maybe stickier because of that? Uh, and is it a question of, you have to raise rates higher or leave them in place longer uh, and wait for the cumulative weight of tightening to hit? Well, I think there's a very good case for um, leaving rates higher for a longer period of time to allow that tightening uh, to hit. I do think the lesson of the 70s was very clear, which is don't give up too early. And uh, anything I've read, and I've talked to lots of other people who seem to have understood that market, they say, you know, if you go back to the Arthur Burns years, it was raise rates, economy weakens, lower rates, inflation comes back stronger, raise rates, economy weakens more, lower rates. That doesn't seem like a path that makes a lot of sense. Does history weigh on you when you refer back to the 70s? Do you really feel the weight of that? I've done a lot of reading about it, and I think for better or for worse, we've got a really good episode where our predecessors did the right thing and got inflation back under control. And I think that's certainly an aspiration for, for me and for us. You understand the view of market participants that when they hear things like the disinflationary process has started, they get the sense that we're moving away from that language, that we want to learn from the lessons of the 1970s, we want to be tighter for longer. They see that as new information. The first step, and you'll hate this word, the first step towards a so-called pivot. Why isn't it that? Why isn't this a pivot? The first step towards what? By acknowledging the disinflationary process has started, for some people, market participants yeah. that speak to us on a daily basis, they view that shift in language as a step away from the Chairman Powell address we got in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, which was eight minutes down the camera, super blunt, there's going to be pain, it's going to be painful, but if we don't do this, it's going to be even more painful. Four or five months later, with an equity market rally in between and a bit of deceleration in inflation data, it's now the disinflationary process has started. And that's the focal point mm -hmm. for so many people. Why isn't that the first step towards a pivot that says, okay, we can back away? Shoot, I just try to keep it simple uh, for myself, which is um, nobody really knows uh, how inflation is going to uh, play out over the next year, over the next two years. And so I think what I can do is talk about how I think about it. The way I think about it is if inflation stays elevated, if it persists, we'll have to do more. 
Well, you uh, struggle with what the markets are thinking, but you're probably very good on what companies are thinking because, mm -hmm. of course, that's your background and you talk to CEOs all the time. What are companies thinking? You mentioned that some are still pushing the envelope on prices, but what's their outlook for growth and particularly employment and wages over the next six to nine months? So the way, the way I put it is everybody's got a recession playbook. It's in the drawer. Um, they've taken it out. They've dusted it off. They've updated it. Right. They have a very clear sense of if things were to turn south, what they do. For the most part, they haven't turned the pages of the playbook. And the reason they haven't turned the pages is that their business actually remains pretty sound. Now, that's not true if you're in mortgage lending. That's not true, uh, obviously, recently in the tech world. But in most of the businesses I talk to, it's still not the point where they pull that. And part of it is they've really fought hard for 18 months to get workers. And they're really reluctant to shed workers if... Uh, it turns out that they didn't need to. And so I think there's still a reluctance. And when you see things like the recent jobs report or some of the uh, consumer spending data we've seen for January, you start to see that in the business's actual demand set. And they're, they're saying, we're not there yet. But of course, we all know it, the world could turn and they could get there. I just don't think they're there yet. Well, that brings up an important question about your reaction function when you're predicting that unemployment is going to rise significantly because you're trying to clamp down on demand and it doesn't happen. How do you incorporate that into your thinking about where you are? Well, I think uh, you know, we've taken rates to where we've taken them. We've signaled, uh, or at least I've signaled that if inflation persists, I'll continue to uh, respond appropriately. Um, you do know that there are long and variable uh, lags with rates. And so you're watching the demand side, not because the objective is to manage demand, but because the objective is to manage inflation. And so you're looking for signals that inflation comes down. You're looking for signals that demand is weakening, softening in places where that would be relevant to uh, inflation coming down. And you play it out. Can you explain longer variable lags to us? Because some people have come on in the last 12 months and they've said to Mike, they said to myself, to Lisa to Tom on Bloomberg TV and radio and said, they're not that long at all. They're pretty sure. Financial conditions will price it all in immediately. They'll tighten, and you'll feel it pretty quickly. Are they that long? Are they that variable? You didn't like financial conditions a second ago, and so we'll, we'll work on that. Um, uh, I do think we've seen in a number of sectors, particularly interest-sensitive sectors, particularly sectors where the strength of the dollar matters, you've seen demand move very, very quickly. And well before we started increasing rates, mortgage rates increased, and that, of course, meant the lag in that sector was less than the world where we used to hide uh, what we're doing. Yep. On the other hand, if you go in lots of other places, think healthcare for a second, a big part of the economy, it's not at all clear that the rate stuff we've done or are doing is having that much impact on demand there. I think that's where it takes more time. And the, the studies I've seen suggest that there's a, a, a period of time to go from uh, raising rates to the impact on demand. But I think the real issue here is from impact on demand to impact on inflation. And that's really, when you talk about the long and variables to inflation, and then I get back to where I started. And, and I, I would just say, you know, there's the sales department, the finance department. The finance department loves raising prices because you know it's the fastest way to move the bottom line. The sales department historically has been very nervous about doing it, either because of incentives or market share or whatever. After the experience of the last couple of years, the finance department has a lot more sway in that conversation than they used to. So how would you characterize the balance of risks at the moment? With all of that in mind, that it's tremendously difficult to confront as a policymaker, Chairman Powell said repeatedly a few times last year that the risk of doing too little outweighed the risk of doing too mm -hmm. much. Is that still the case? It is for me. I mean, we're still in a 3.4% unemployment economy with inflation, depending on which measure you want to look at, uh, well over our target, 5 6%, 6 on a 12-month basis. Um, feels to me like 
the risk is on the inflation side at this point rather than the economy side. We are talking with Richmond Fed President Tom Barkin on Bloomberg Television and Radio. Uh, thank you to all of our viewers and listeners around the world. Uh, what is your view in terms of the growth outlook at this point? It seems like we went through a phase of recessions inevitable, then, oh, we're going to have a soft landing. You have people saying no landing. Uh, where do you come down on all of that? Um, you know, I, I keep trying to look at past recessions or past economic uh, down, you know, uh, tightening cycles and ask the question of which this is most like. And of course, the ones that are most recent in our memory are all recessions where something winged in from left field, whether that be 9-11 or the uh, financial crisis or the pandemic. Um, and so I, I think we may be looking at an economy more like the one that I remember back in the early 90s where there was a tightening cycle. Um, and uh, different sectors got hit one at a time. It seemed like much more of a rolling uh, situation. And so the overall numbers perhaps aren't gonna be as uh, uh, negative. You know, again, I'm assuming nothing comes in from left field, but aren't gonna be as uh, bad as the ones we remember them from two years ago or, or 15 years ago, but we'll see. Well, when you uh, sit down on March 22nd with your new uh, projections for the economy, uh, are you marking up growth? Are you marking down growth? What do you think is gonna happen? I've got a month before I need to make those <laughs> projections. And I'm teasing, but I'm quite serious about it. We, we have a real serious process. We run multiple models on this. We take in all the more, most recent data. We will get another jobs report, one perhaps with less seasonality impact. We'll get another PCE and a, a CPI. And so I wouldn't want to front run our team and our models on that forecast. Just in terms of risks around the view already projected from December, upside risk for growth, for inflation, for the terminal rate. How are you thinking about things currently? Well, the biggest surprise has been the jobs market. I mean, the, the jobs report we got a couple of weeks ago was quite significant and much stronger than what I had anticipated. And so the question in my mind is going to be, are we going to get another one like that in February, or are we going to get something in February that revises, corrects, moves it down? So I think that's, that's really the key thing I'm looking at in terms of growth. It's been surprising for all of us to see unemployment come lower. There was a take, I think, last year. Mike, you, you and I used to talk about it all the time. This is the Fed's job. They need to get unemployment up to get inflation down. And it sounded ugly, it was brutal, it was difficult to communicate as a policymaker. Do you still see it that way? Do you need to get unemployment up to get inflation down? I see we need to get inflation down to get inflation down. And what I mean by that is, um, you know, our tools work on demand, they work on lots of various things, but the key to this whole thing is getting inflation down. I don't start with unemployment, I start with inflation. And we'll see what happens on the employment market. We're still at 3.4% unemployment. That's a historically low number. You're talking 1969 and before that, you know, 1951. And so, um, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the jobs market so far, quite strong. We'll see what happens. Are people in uh, the companies in the Richmond district telling you that they are still having trouble finding people or has that eased? Um, it's not as desperate as it was a year ago or a year and a third ago, uh, but it's still very tight. Um, uh, on the professionals uh, though, I think, uh, that has kind of loosened some of the uh, layoff announcements recently have sort of hit home. People trying to hire tech workers are having an easier time doing it. Um, for the frontline service workers, still very tight. Um, uh, but people are getting by, whether it's lower service levels or not cleaning the hotel room every day. Uh, the place that's still screaming tight is skilled trades. Construction, nurses, truck drivers. We just don't have as many as we need. Demand in a lot of those places remains elevated. Um, and uh, folks are really struggling to find those, those folks. That's really where it's the tightest. Let me ask you about the balance sheet. It's been running in the background. It's been paint drying, but there have been 
concerns uh, expressed in the short-term money markets, and we're still seeing a lot of money put back into the repo facility. Is it working uh, the way you want it to? Are you getting the results that you want, or is this also a case where the markets are not reflecting necessarily what you're trying to accomplish with QT? I think uh, uh, we did a bunch of actions we thought important at the time in terms of uh, uh, stimulus and you know, supporting the markets back in 2020. We're now trying to unwind that. Uh, I think our primary tool is the rate tool. It's not the balance sheet tool. The objective is to unwind the balance sheet uh, uh, expansion that we did and do it in a way that uh, doesn't uh, change any focus on our primary tool, which is the rate tool. You guys still seem to be focused on the rate tool, so I think so far so good. <laughs> We're focused on the balance sheet too, so let's stay there. I'm sure you're pleased that people see it as paint drying, but it's not. It wasn't just an objective to get the balance sheet up. You were looking for a consequence from doing that. You said the objective was to get the balance sheet down. Are you not expecting there to be a consequence there? Uh, I, I mean, uh, first of all, the analysis of the impact of balance sheet movements is unbelievably difficult, arcane, opaque, and tortured. And so I've really struggled as I've kind of come into this to, to come to ground to it. Where I've landed is it's got to be symmetric. If you believe that adding to the balance sheet does something, then you've got to believe that shrinking the balance sheet does something else. So I've got no question about that. I do believe that on both the expansion side and the reduction side, it's a lot smaller than some of the estimates you'll see. Um, and, you know, people talk about the, uh, the impact of buying more bonds. There's also a signaling effect when you're buying. Um, I think the signaling effect may actually outweigh the impact of buying the bonds. Um, the signaling effect in terms of when you would finally raise rates or whatever. When you're shrinking the balance sheet, there's a shrinkage effect, and then there's a signaling effect. The shrinking effect, of course, I would say is parallel to the expansion. And then the question is, what is the signaling? The signaling tends to be around liquidity. That's the conversation that gets raised. I just would come back and say, um, compare today's balance sheet to 2018 or 2019's balance sheet, it's still so much larger that I have trouble seeing that liquidity is actually being driven by what we're doing right now. Back at home, what worries the people of the Richmond district? I mean, we have the idea of a possibility of recession. We've got uh, what's going on with energy prices because we don't know what's happening in Ukraine. Uh, there's this whole idea of the debt limit leading to a default. How much are people in your area focused on those things? Uh, the, what I hear over and over and over again is that people hate inflation. Um, and that's what they're focused on. I mean, people hate inflation because it seems unfair. I mean, you, you, uh, you get a raise and then you spend the money you just got at the gas pump. It feels arbitrarily taken away, creates uncertainty. Um, and and it's, it's just exhausting. Uh, you know, uh, it's exhausting to shop around for better prices. It's exhausting to defend your prices to a, to a customer. And so people are really excited about the, pro, the prospect that we might get inflation under control, but you don't have to look much beyond the sentiment indices to see what people think about inflation. And that still is the overwhelming conversation we're having. I have to ask you this. Uh, it appears that at the Federal Reserve, you're going to be in the market for a new vice chairman. Uh, Lael Brainerd, what does she bring to the Fed and to the Open Market Committee? How would you characterize her tenure? Well, I don't know uh, what will or won't happen uh, in, from the administration, um, but Lael's an asset. I mean, she's uh, very smart, she's very capable, uh, and she's an asset to us. And uh, if she does something else, I'm sure she'll be an asset there. She's been seen as uh, one of the doves on the board. Is there such a thing, and was she? We have 19 really, really capable uh, people on the committee, and I listen to every one of them, because um, every one of them brings a, a unique view. And as we've learned in the, um, 
you know, last few years, people's views change as the data comes in. And so, you know, I've got uh, colleagues that you might think are doves who might, I mean, go the other, I mean, I think, so yeah. it's, uh, I think people j take the job very seriously and they're very genuinely interested in landing the plane on whatever is actually the situation in the moment, as opposed to, I'll call it a pre-existing leaning. There's really any dissent. Why is that? Um, you mean dissents or dissent singular? Because um, I, I have the privilege of sitting in the meeting and there's lots of points of view uh, that are phrased. So I, I wouldn't be confused about the idea that uh, there aren't a lot of different points of view raised. Give us a bit more clarity on that because from the outside looking in, sometimes it feels like groupthink. There aren't people that come out that say, I disagree with the decision and this is why. It's incredibly rare, particularly from the board. How much of that is actually taking place inside the building around these decisions that we're just not aware of? Why isn't this group think? Well, I, um, I spend my time uh, every six weeks, seven weeks per meetings. I go into the market. I don't spend a lot of time in my building. I'm trying to figure out as best I can what's happening in the economy from people who are participating in it. Um, I try to come up with my own points of view in terms of you know, what's happening to economic conditions and where we ought to go with policy. And I show up with my points of view. And then every time I go there, I learn something. And I learned from uh, people who are doing the exact same thing with their own independent views. I think the structure of the system is very well set up to gather independent views. And then, of course, the meetings are very well uh, led in effort to put those on the table and try to, to land on a place where, you know, you can get some version of a consensus. One of the things people have been critical of is uh, that there are 19 members of the Open Market Committee who are speaking all the time. And it can be confusing to uh, markets and to the public. Do you see that as a valid critique? Well, um, I'm privileged to be here, so I guess if I say no, then I'm asking well, you're why. You're the only I, one that's I'm allowed here. to come back regularly yeah. every day. No more interviews after that. Exactly. Um, uh, I see a huge part of my job as trying to translate uh, what we do into the district that I serve. And so, um, like I said, I really am on the ground all the time. I'm doing chambers of commerces in small cities. And I think there's a real thirst for understanding. And I think there's real value to um, the people in our community hearing from and understanding people who they think are actually rational, not you know, uh, people from Washington, if I, I can put it that way. And so I think there's huge value in that. You guys choose to cover it. Uh, I'll leave it to you whether that's the right thing to do or not. But, but I don't see it as getting out of me. I see it as actually talking to the constituents in my district. Just one final question. And you've been incredibly gracious with your time. So thank you for that, Tom. It's the third year of pandemic economics. China's reopening. I feel like the consensus has been dead wrong every single year on every major issue. As we go into the third year all of, the, of all of this, how are you thinking about that challenge as a policymaker? Is there something you're hesitant on drawing too many conclusions on too prematurely? Right. I, I think we're normalizing, but you can't ignore the impact of the pandemic the, that the pandemic is still having in the economy. Some of the things we've talked about, businesses reluctant to shed workers because of the history, shortages in switch gears uh, in cabinets, a trillion plus in excess savings still out there, the infrastructure bill still being deployed. All of these things are, if I could call it, um, you know, not normal, artificial things that are in the economy today that um, weren't in the economy three years ago. Now, for me or for us, you have to take it as a given. And so you try to make policy against the economy you've got, not the economy you wish you had. Um, but, but I think for sure you've still got that in the economy. President Barkin, thank you. You can do as much Fed speak as you like, just so long as it's like, you know. Right here. Right yeah. here. Yeah. We're, we're, we're every, week, every day. <laughs> I appreciate the time. Thanks for hey, having thank me you. Thank you. Thank you. 
nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com. Stephen Stanley joins us now, Chief U.S. Economist and Ender, U.S. Capital Market. Steve Stanley, thank you for joining us with the brief here. You and I remember the idiocy where the world would stop M1, M2, M3. I think it was Thursday afternoon long ago and far away. How silly are we being right now here 11 minutes, 28 seconds away? Well, I do think there's a lot of seasonal noise in the data. We saw it uh, with the January employment report. I think we'll see it again tomorrow with the retail sales numbers and to some degree with the CPI. And uh, you had three very low readings to end last year and everyone got really excited about inflation is under control. Um, And then last Friday, we got new seasonal adjustment. Uh, They ran the seasonal adjustment program again and they revised up October, November, and December for the core. So all of a sudden, that downward momentum on inflation has kind of dissipated. And I think we're going to see more of that, more of that today. I'm, I'm looking for a, a 0.4 reading on the core with maybe some upside risk to that. Stephen, this conversation about Supercore, can you just shine a light on some of the conversations you have with clients at the moment? Are they asking about that a lot? Do they expect an estimate from you? What do you say? Yeah, people are definitely starting to try to focus on that. I think, you know, the, the key here really is the, is this housing piece. I mean, we're taking that out. Um, it's over 40% of the core. So, you know, when you take that out, you're taking out a pretty big chunk. Uh, but the presumption is that, that housing uh, expenses are going up fast right now, but they're going to come off later in the year because of the lags involved. We know that the housing uh, market has, has cooled off. And so people are wanting to focus on, you know, on, on the other pieces in the core. But the the broad point is that services prices tend to be very sticky and they've accelerated. And I think it's just going to take quite a bit of time for them to come back off. With all of these seasonal adjustments, Stephen, and as we watch some of the upward revisions, even on the prior month CPI that's heading into this current report, are we going to look back and say there wasn't that much disinflation at this point, that that was sort of a head fake at a time when services still were reaccelerating? Yeah, well, if you look at what happened late last year, it was just a a handful of very volatile categories that were pushing things down. I mean, gasoline was the most obvious one, but used car prices were falling rapidly. Airfares were falling rapidly, which was really the same thing as the as gasoline prices. It was the you know the reversal of the of the big um, spike that we saw in energy costs after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. So you could see at the time that it was not sustainable, uh, the, the, the low core readings that we were getting, the low headline readings that we were getting. And I think now we're getting back to something more in line with, with where the fundamentals are. 
All right, so now we're going to get a Fed parade, uh, including Tom Barkin joining John Farrow and Michael McKee coming up here. What are they going to say if this is a hotter-than-expected print? Well, the Fed has actually been leaning against the the market enthusiasm and saying, hey, look, this is going to be a tough uh, task ahead of us. It's going to take quite a bit of time. So it's not going to be I told you so, but it's going to be, I think, much more steady as she goes for the Fed than it had than it will be for the markets. Um, It feels like to me that the Fed has really almost locked in a game plan here. They want to get rates just above 5 percent, which probably means two more quarter point hikes. And then they want to pause and give it a few months and see what happens. Um, And so I think the bar is probably relatively high for Mm. divergence from that short-term game plan on either side. Stephen, to the breathlessness, eight minutes, six seconds away, is this idiocy? Excuse me, I I editorialize here, John. Please excuse me. (laughs) Sir John, I'm sorry. This idiocy, Mr. Stanley, of now casting. The beloved geniuses at Cleveland, who I adore for their work on inflation for 20 and 30 years, even they have dived into the value of now casting. Is there any statistical value to navel-gazing now casting? Well, you know, I guess we've all, you know, as economists, we've all been doing that to a degree. Uh, I don't like to advertise my number on a day-to-day basis, but really, at the end of the day, the one price that we all can track very closely on a day-to-day basis is gasoline prices. And that is responsible for a good part of the, uh, the high frequency noise in the data. Otherwise, I think, you know, it's pretty tough. I mean, how do we know there's going to, whether it's going to be an upside or downside surprise, for example, on shelter costs or recreation costs or medical care? I mean, you know, we don't have a lot of data on that. So um, there's certain things that we can track and others that we can't. Stephen, you've had time to dive into a first look at this interesting data. What's the adult take? So uh, it was largely as expected, but I would say it could have been worse. Um, we saw a big decline in used car prices again. We saw a big decline in airfares again. Those things are not likely to continue for much longer. Uh, medical care services prices were down 0.7. That's probably, you know, an exaggeration of, of what we're likely to see in that category. So, I mean, and obviously there were upside surprises too, but my point being that some of these volatile categories that had been driving down the readings in uh, late 2022 continued in January and we still got a 0.4, mm-hmm. which again, I think speaks to what we were discussing before that as long as shelter costs are going up as rapidly as they have been, um, it's going to be tough to get inflation down anywhere close to where the Fed would like to see it. This is absolutely critical. There's no other way uh, to put it here, folks. And we see it from an equity strategist like Lizanne Saunders, an economist like Mr. Stanley. The idea of housing is being overwhelming. How overwhelming is it, Stephen? Give us a percentage of our lives that are based off the set of housing data you have. Sure. Well, the CPI, I think, maybe exaggerates a little bit, but if you just combine rent and owner's equivalent rent, uh, those two account for a little over 40% of core CPI. So when we talk about, you know, the super core idea, I mean, we're taking out a big chunk of the numbers. Now, the the weights are a little bit smaller in the PCE deflator, which is the inflation indicator that the Fed uh, most closely focuses on. Uh, but yeah, I mean, uh, it, it, within the CPI, housing right. is is maybe the story. 
We're going to talk here with Stephen Stanley of Santander. Michael McKee is digging into the data, and we're thrilled to bring you Kenneth Rogoff of Harvard University with his perspective here in a bit. We're commercial-free here to the top of the hour. Lisa? Yeah, as we watch the yo-yo action in markets, which really builds on what we've seen so Look far this equities. year. I mean, it's really, it's like a, a child's <laughs> toy, what's going on right now in markets. And I am wondering, Stephen, whether you're looking at the inclination to rally, which is something that we have seen so far this year, how much of a challenge that present to a Federal Reserve that on the margins is seeing, seeing the disinflationary process that is too slow for comfort. Yeah, well, I think, you know, the markets and the Fed have not quite been on the same page for a while now. The markets have, you know, embraced slower inflation late last year. The markets want a, a quick Fed pivot later this year. And the Fed has been trying to push back against that to no avail. Um, I, I thought, you know, Chairman Powell had a nice chance to really kind of, um, you know, push back at the FOMC meeting when he was asked about financial conditions and he didn't. So I think the Fed has taken the tack of we'll let the data, um, you know, determine how the markets react. And we think the data are going to play out in a way that will get things closer to where we think they should be. Yeah. Um, you know, it's always a dangerous game when the Fed tries to tries to influence uh, asset prices. It's a dangerous game when they try to influence asset prices. And yet, traditionally, this was one of their main transmission mechanisms of monetary policy. How much do they get further away from their goal as financial conditions, by most measures, ease substantially to some of the lowest levels going back, some of the most accommodative levels going back to early 2022? Yeah, and there's no doubt. I mean, it's, it's the, the minute the markets sniff, you know, that the Fed might not have to go quite as much uh, financial conditions ease. So in, in some ways, it kind of um, it, it, it's a self-equilibrating process. But from the Fed's perspective, the concern is that even if you get somewhat weak uh, real economic data, inflation might prove sticky or stubborn. Well, and that's the scenario that the market really hasn't been willing to contemplate much. Stephen Stanley, thank you so much for Santander this morning. Literally. This is a joy on a, on a busy inflation day to have Kenneth Rogoff with us, to say he's professor at Harvard University, his work for the nation at the International Monetary Fund, defies a description of This Time Is Different, a seminal book here that is must-read, must-own, but far more his courageous The Curse of Cash, which was out a number of years ago on this inflation day, on this day where Lyle Brainerd will join the White House. There's things to talk about but we will talk about crypto here in a moment with uh, Professor Rogoff. Ken, thank you so much for joining us this morning. Hey, great to be here. Uh, there's some people making news on inflation. One of them is a guy named Summers, who I think you've got a nodding acquaintance with uh, at Cambridge. Is the character of this inflation, the shock disinflations pre-Eisenhower 47 and through the 50s, is it like the 60s and the worry pre-Volcker, or is this a different inflation? Well, I think the Fed clearly is more alert than at an earlier time. On the other hand, I think, as Lisa has been saying and others, inflation's still here. Uh, the economy is still strong. And I think they have to decide how to play it. And one thing I think people maybe aren't paying enough attention to is that when inflation comes down, don't be sure interest rates are going to come down as much as people got used to mm -hmm. uh, before 19, uh, 2022. I think the next decade, we're going to land at a higher 
real interest rate than we did before. So it's not just where if the Fed doesn't just have to figure out, you know, how much is inflation, they have to figure out where do we put right. the interest rate long term so that we don't have inflation. My book of the summer is Olivier Blanchard's new monograph that's out that's just absolutely brilliant on something academic, R minus G to keep it simple as well. The heart of Professor Blanchard's thesis is there's other things going on here we're really not observing right now. It's just not as cookie cutter, as simple as all the simple analysis that goes on day to day. What's a thing going on here post-pandemic that changes our finance and particularly as Olivier talks about, changes our debt analysis? Well, I think there are two things. Uh, One is, I think, inflation-adjusted interest rates are going to land higher than Olivier does. I think if you look at history, uh, yes, there's a slight downward trend in the inflation-adjusted interest rate, but it's very tiny compared to how much it fell after the financial crisis. And I think there's going to be more mean reversion than perhaps he does. But who knows? I mean, that's mm-hmm. a lot of uncertainty. And I'd say a second point is China's not going to be the same in the next decade as they were in the last decade. Yeah, they're rebounding off COVID lockdown. But I think that's also really going to those are two big changes and trends that we're going to see after the pandemic that we mm-hmm. didn't have before. Why then is it, uh, is it important for there to be essentially tighter financial conditions for longer, right? Because higher real interest rates imply it's not just an inflation story. Well, we had lower financial conditions for longer for a long time because people were scared after the financial crisis. Saving was really high. Investment was really low. Now we've entered an era where debt has really gone up quite a bit, private and public, which has leads to some adjustment in the interest rate. Probably defense spending is going to go up. Spending on uh, green uh, transition is going to go up more populous governments from Latin America to the United States to Europe. So I think there are a lot of factors that will lead to more of a normalization. So people are listening to you and they're thinking to themselves, is that good or bad for stocks? You know, ultimately, is this good or bad for uh, the markets? Because that's sort of how people have viewed all Fed actions in recent years. Basically, tighter financial conditions have been bad for markets, and yet an effective tightening has allowed markets to rally that much more. Can you see that sort of sustained momentum of financial markets, even in the face of tighter monetary conditions of higher real rates? So higher real rates will mean lower asset prices in general. But what's going on right now, of course, is that the economy is stronger than we would have guessed if the numbers were right from the last labor market report. And that that was incredible. It was eye-popping then the economy is doing pretty well, and that's good news. So if the interest rates are tighter from that, that's obviously good for markets. If you're just joining us on radio and television, welcome to Bloomberg Surveillance, a key inflation report. Lisa's monitoring. Can I say green on the screen now? I think just here <laughs> for the last I don't know. A second. Future's up three, and they're really, there's some serious gyration going on here uh, before we get to the opening. Uh, VIX 19.41, the two-year yield 4.52%. We're thrilled to have a substantial conversation this morning with Professor Rogoff of Harvard University. Long ago and far away, you exited the IMF, and then Blanchard was there with Stiglitz, and post-GFC, they looked at 4% inflation. What an uproar that ensued. And then I would suggest that Peterson, Adam Posen, has talked about 3% is a new appropriate level. 
Are we going to get away from an anchored 2% verbiage? Are we going to reset? i got to make some news here. Ken, help me. Are we going to, are we going to reset this morning higher than a 2% level? I'm not going to be able to help you, Tom. I, mean, I think that's extraordinarily <laughs> unlikely and, frankly, not a good idea. Yes, probably back in the day, they should have set 3% instead of 2%, but they didn't. And, you know, they've really made commitments. If you change it, it means you might change it again. So I think what, in fact, will happen, I don't think we're going to have a soft landing, by the way. I think we're mm -hmm. going to have soft, but not the landing. I think inflation's they're going to allow to be elevated right. for longer, but they're going to say it's going to get back to 2%. We're yeah. just taking longer. I think that's going to be the rhetoric. I want to shift here to China, as you mentioned earlier. And to me, what's so important, Ken, and I mentioned there's this guy named Obsfeld who wrote a textbook a few years ago with a guy named Rogoff. It's, it's, I think it's 9,000 pages. Well, it's like in the Game of Thrones where they take it off shelf. It, it just feels Three. like 9,000 like, <laughs> It just feels like that. But, Ken, what's so important here is we go from Obsfeld and Rogoff to the work that Lau Brainer did with David Riker 20 years ago on trade and labor. Some in your international economics with a challenge uh, Dr. Brainerd is going to have at the White House with this evil thing out there now, China. She's expert on trade and labor multinational dynamics. Where are we heading on that with China? Well, first, let me say I have the utmost respect for Lael. I actually worked under her at Brookings when I was a visiting scholar in her section. I've known her for a long time. She's terrific. I think trade economists are looking at the data so far and saying, what deglobalization? Everybody's talking about it, but it's not in the data yet. But if you look at the tensions with China, and I have to say, particularly if something goes on in Ukraine, say with Russia really escalating with nuclear neutron bomb or something, and China continuing to trade, we are going to have to be talking about secondary sanctions, which we had done with Iran and North Korea, but we've absolutely not done with Russia. You want to trade with Russia, it's your business, it's fine. And and then that that really will be something. And a lot of the effects we saw in the labor market could be partly mm -hmm. reversed. But short of that, uh, it's you know modest, the changes that we're likely to see. The shift from Leo Brainerd from vice chair to the head of the Economic Council for President Biden does highlight also the very political nature uh, of making some of the decisions that you talk about, the sort of Adam Posen take on it, the Kenneth Rogoff take on it, that the Fed will allow inflation to remain higher for longer. How much is that a response to the sort of deglobalization that policy is going to hope for, this admission that you don't want to kill the economy. How political is that decision of allowing inflation to run hot heading into later this year? Well, I, I mean, I personally have long said I just thought it was the right decision because basically we don't know what's going on. The labor market you know, has all these distortions that are coming off. The economy has all these distortions that are coming off. And you don't want to you know, race ahead like you know what you're doing for sure. I, I wouldn't be surprised if interest rates end up at six to bring down inflation. But why do you want to get there right away? Why do you want to rush to that judgment? Maybe they're going to end up much lower. So I, I, I think I, I don't think it's it's clearly very political at some level because growth is strong, but inflation's high. Which way do we choose? That is a political decision. It affects people differently, but the Fed tries to approach it in a technocratic way. 
What he just said there, that rates could get to 6%, but why rush it, right? This is an important point. So do you think that it is appropriate to do 25 basis point increments, or do you think that they should just sort of sit on their hands and wait for a number of months to really get underway since there isn't a rush in your view? Honestly speaking, either strategy would be reasonable at this point, but they're kind mm -hmm. of committed, I would say, to do two-quarter point hikes at this point, given right. the labor market data, given the inflation data. And I don't think it matters a lot one way. It would matter more if suddenly we don't know what they're doing. But I, th I think the real message is that the who knew what was going to happen with the labor market report? And so I think there's right. a lot of uncertainty around, and that means to move slower and cautiously, uh, but you can't predict mm -hmm. too far ahead. Ken, I want to get in and do this without first-order difference equations, or they'll all turn to channel or drive off the road. I remember post-Volker, and Olivier mentioned this in his book, he and Jeff Sachs wrote an essay in 1981, and boy, were they taken to task at higher rates can be not crucial for worrying about debt sustainability. So many of our listeners and viewers are scared stiff that if we get higher rates, or where we are now, or the 6% you talk of, that we're not going to be able to fund our debt and our deficit. Are they linked, or is it separate? If, if, can we be comfortable with a higher rate regime given the debt of the nation? Well, first of all, the United States is the global currency, so we have a lot of debt capacity. The question is how much it costs us. The, the real outcome, if we have too much debt, is that we'll get more inflation at some point. That's what just happened. We just had an effective partial default on debt. Inflation was much higher than anyone was expecting, and that put money in the government's pockets. That option's there. It's a soft mm -hmm. partial default. Right. That, that's what we're talking We're not talking about not paying the bills unless some crazy right. people in Congress decide to do that. I had no time for crypto. There's a more important question. I believe there's a vacancy at the Fed. Would you consider being vice chairman of the Federal Reserve System? Uh, I, I don't think I'm likely to be a candidate for that, but uh, thank you for asking. This is good. Because <laughs> it's, his, it's his to offer the job, so it's good that he uh, checked <laughs> I'm in. I'm trying to make news. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. We're like 0 for 7 with Rogoff today. I disagree. 6% inflation was well, very No, 6%. 6 rates. There was a lot, yes. though. This is a really important point because it was sort of edifying this Adam Posen view where why is there a push to get back to 2% inflation? Are we yeah. going to get that kind of view? Even if you want to see disinflation, then at what point is it enough disinflation to be okay? These are some of the discussions at a time when it is a political decision and the economy is still strong. I'm, I'm going to defend the land of Rogoff and that the common feature, even if they disagree. So he mentioned at the beginning he disagrees with Professor Blanchard, who's more quiescent about we can come back and the real rate can stay down and all that. But the answer is these people have a hard-earned humility by knowing the history of inflation fear is in Reinhardt and Rogoff. There's a, there's a humility here, Lisa, that I don't hear in the, the noise of Twitter and the noise of the rest of it. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. 
Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival. No one else yep. on inflation to speak to after Kenneth Rogoff of Harvard than David Rosenberg of Toronto. David Rosenberg, iconic here in parsing inflation. David, do you find any value in the new rationalization of looking at super core inflation, a service sector toxic cocktail? Is that a value or not? Well, you know what the Fed is telling you with this new... Uh super-duper core core index, uh, it's 25% of the CPI. Uh, so if the Fed is focusing on 25% of the index, then uh, Lord help us all. Uh, you know, but it, it's the same Jay Powell that told us a year ago that, uh, you know, that his new favorite yield curve, you know, was the three months, uh, three months forwards, 18 months from now, because uh, at that point, it was the only curve that was causally <laughs> sloped. And, and now that's inverted. So, you know, I think that, look, the Fed, for a host of reasons, wants to maintain a tight policy stance. I think inflation, uh, look, inflation is like uh, a race between watching uh, grass grow and paint dry, but it's clearly peaked. Uh, it is coming yeah, down. Yeah, but David, David, to be serious here, the owner's equivalent rent ticked up year over year, 7.5 to 7.8. I find the super core fixation basically juvenile. How does an adult like you look at this when our listeners in Canada and America are getting crushed by housing costs? Right. Well, look, just to mention the number, I mean, that uh, the, the new Powell number was up 0. 0.4, uh, call it a 5% annual rate. Um, so that's what's going to give them the green light uh, to continue to raise rates. Uh, and they clearly want to go not just to the next meeting, but the meeting afterwards. Look, Tom, you know, so much of the CPI, which Alan Greenspan famously called a flawed statistic at an FOMC meeting uh, several decades ago, so much of the service sector, the service sector that the Fed's focused on, are, are imputed. I mean, these aren't real numbers. Uh, they're guesstimates um, by the BLS. You know, whether you look at how, how do you measure inflation in financial services? I mean, they look at the yield curve or health services, for example. They look at uh, profit margins in the health insurance sector. I mean, so much of this is just pure fluff. What I'm going to say is that, you know, let's take a look and see what inflation is doing for the things that you can see, touch, or feel. Uh, and I'm talking, for example, about the core goods component, which is the most hyper-cyclical part of the CPI. Uh, and it was up, you know, it was almost flat. It was up less than 0.1%, uh, you know, after a string of numbers that were either flat or negative. Uh, and that year-over-year trend has just literally collapsed was 11.8% this time last year, year on year. Uh, the core goods CPI is running at 1.3 right now, Tom. That's the lowest it's been since October 2020. So uh, I'd like to focus on things that don't involve guesswork. Uh, I like to focus on things that don't require imputations from the BLS. I know that's what the Fed's focused on. Um, but I think that the significant downdraft you're actually seeing in the core goods CPI, to me, that is telling the tale. David, you know, you, you look at the markets here just this morning, the futures kind of mixed, uh, not really much going on in the yield market as well. It seems like investors are really don't know what to take out of this uh, report here. What do you think, more importantly, the Federal Reserve will take out of today's data? 
Well, I think that based on what they're looking at, it's going to add justification for them to go again in March. Uh, they clearly want to go again in May. Uh, who knows what they're going to do by the end of the year. They, they wanted the markets to price out those uh, dual rate cuts by the end of 2023. They've successfully done that. Um, but who knows where we're going to end up at the end of the year. I mean, look, it's the same Fed that told us with their dot plots back in the beginning of 2022 that we're going to finish last year less than 1% on the funds rate. We ended up north of 4%. Uh, so it's going to be situational. But for the here and now, if you're looking at what the Fed is looking at, this gives them the green light to go in March and to maintain a tightening bias into the May meeting. Hmm. How about on the uh, just the broad economic front, David? I mean, I'm kind of hearing the, the rhetoric shift away from recession talk. How do you think about that? Well, you know, it, it's funny how one number has influenced so many people's uh, perception on the economy. I mean, it'd be one thing if we had like eight economic numbers coming in weak, eight coming in strong, and then, wow, we get this 517 on non-farm payrolls. But every number's been lining up weak. Uh, I mean, we know coming out of the fourth quarter that real private final sales was flat, flat as a pancake. Virtually every real macro indicator was negative on a three-month basis heading into the end of 2022, and then, bang, we get the non-farm payroll number, and it's mm-hmm. influenced everybody's expectations. But we know that employment, employment-like inflation is a coincidence of a lagging indicator. It tells you nothing about the future. So yeah. I think people's minds have been muddled. They don't talk about what the household survey did, population yeah. count adjusted. They don't talk. What happened? Let me ask a question. What happened to ADP? Worst number in 23 months. <laughs> it, was out, it was out 48 hours before non Okay. It's become, like, it's become a relic. Yeah. Uh, so I, I'd, I'd say that the view of like okay. no land, you know, soft landing, yeah. I think it's actually a bit of a joke. It's a classic case of hope triumphing over experience. Okay, David, we're out of time. We're going to have you back on when Montreal stops wearing those ridiculous light blue jerseys. David (laughs) Rosenberg from Canada uh, this morning there on the Inflation Board. Honored to have him on. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app. Tune in and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.